Welcome to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. Every Friday morning from 9 to 10 a.m. Pacific and online at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Based on harrowing true events, Song Without a Name tells the story of Georgina, an indigenous Indian woman whose newborn baby is whisked away moments after birth in a downtown Lima clinic and never to be returned. Stonewalled by a Byzantine and indifferent legal system, Georgina approaches a journalist, Pedro Campas, who uncovers a web of fake clinics and abductions, suggesting eroding corruption deep within Peruvian society. Set in 1988, in a Peru racked by political violence and turmoil, Melina Leon's heart-wrenching first feature renders Georgina's story in gorgeous and shadowy black-and-white cinematography. It is a beautiful film to look at, and it is a very compelling and, as I said, heart-wrenching story. The film, again, is Song Without a Name. And we're joined today by the director, and that would be Melina Leon. Melina, welcome to Film School Radio. Thank you, Mike. A pleasure to be here. Thank you. It is, a, it is a very powerful film, a quietly powerful film. It builds and builds as the story goes on. That There's sort of quiet determination on the part of Georgina that really kind of infuses the film with this, not only its sort of moral core, but also her determination to find her, her baby girl. What inspired the story? It was inspired by a true case um, that my father, who was a journalist, reported at the beginning of the 80s in Peru. It was the first headline of the newspaper La República, the Republic, uh, which is one of the biggest uh, newspapers here in Peru. And he worked there with, and with other journalists, they researched about this case and this was their first uh, headline. So it was inspired by that, and also because this story came back many years later, came back in 2006, more or less, around that year, when uh, I was studying in New York, was doing my MFA in film, and uh, my father called me from Peru to tell me that he had received a phone call from friends, and it turned out to be a, a woman that was one of the babies that got stolen back in the day and she she wanted to meet him she was in Peru I think or going actually she called from France she was gonna go to Peru and she wanted to make arrangements uh, for a meeting to just chat and thank him for the articles she wrote more than 30 years before um, so I that thing that the story just uh, was very moving to me not only the the core of it the the story of a um, woman or, or all these women whose baby got stolen but also the way it came back was um, was very important to me because um i felt uh, that in a way um the past, you can't escape the past. It always comes back to you in some form. I felt that. Um, and I felt like um, for a first feature film, I was already looking for a story. It would be good for me to go back to my country to make any first film. That's 
more or less the inspiration. The, the entire situation was inspiring to me. Did you meet this woman that um, came back to... Only, only by phone, by chat. We, we didn't get to meet because I was in New York. My dad got to meet her. Became good friends. Um, yeah, as much as possible. I mean, she lives in France. She has her own life there. But they, they stayed in touch for a while um, after this first meeting. Um, and then she was supposed to go to the premiere at Cannes. Celine was supposed to go, but then she got sick. She couldn't go, but... We are in touch now with her. Has, has she seen the film? She has. She has. She, she has not. It's very hard for her to this film, but she, she's written a little bit about it, recommending it. It's one of those situations, uh, as you're watching um, the film, that it's hard to imagine just the, the sort of the, re- the realization that Georgina has when they, after they've taken her baby away, she's just given birth. They take the baby away. They're saying that she, she'll see it soon. And then they, they force her to leave this clinic that she's just given birth in. And then she's, I mean, it's, it's, it's unimaginable for, for anyone to go through what she went through in those first, in that part of the film to, to realize that she's not going to get to see her child. And then the realization that that's not going to happen in all probability ever. And it it sets this tone for the film, and her her character. Um, I'd like to talk a little bit about Georgina and the character you you um, that she is in the film, uh, and how her roots. She's an indigenous woman, right? Mm-hmm. Living in extreme poverty, barely able to make um, you know put food on the table, to go through all these trauma. I guess what I'm trying to get to is the powerless, this power dynamic that's in the film, the powerless trying to trying to find some form of justice, some something akin to a, a life worth living in, in, in that society that's so hostile. Am I overstating that? Is that is that a fair assessment? No, no, you're not overstating it, no, not at all. It's it's a hostile society. Uh, it's it's a hostile society for any anybody that's powerless. As you were describing it, I was thinking about the children in cages. I was thinking about that uh, in the yes. south of the, yeah. the U.S. right now. It's they are going. Mothers and fathers are going through the same thing. Are separated from their children. They have no idea they'll be reunited. And it's my understanding that some of them got lost forever, and there's no track. So this is a story that. <laughs> It continues to happen, yeah. not only in the U.S., not only in Peru, all over the world. As you described it, this situation at the southern border of the United States, what makes that in some ways more egregious and, and awful is that the children are of, a, of an age to know their mother, to have a relationship. We see these three and four and five-year-old children ripped from their arms of their parents and and in some ways... That's worse. It's hard to imagine something worse, but that's worse because now it's not just the mother who grieves for the daughter that she'll never probably ever see. You have the child who's, who watches her mom being taken away. So, I, absolutely. yeah. Hmm? Yeah, absolutely. The two cases that I have been able to, to see closely in Peru were Celine's, the first woman that called my father, 
and she was stolen as a baby and at least uh, as sad as it is at least she was not traumatized by it or at least as, as far as we know psychology will have maybe another opinion but as far as we know she she sort of did okay with her new family but uh the other case that actually celine helped um to un unveil um these children were selling when they were older at seven six seven and they their lives didn't go well at all because obviously they they remember they they, they realize everything so and at that age, and at that age, it's impossible for a child to not, in some strange way, blame themselves. It, it's impossible for the, for them to understand any kind of context that this could happen, except that they did something wrong. And this is the trauma that I've been reading about and hearing about that these these young people are going to be going through. That you're exa that exactly talking about. They don't know how could they possibly. So, let's talk about a song without a name. And this is your first feature film. And uh, you said, as you said, uh, describing the story, this, you were looking for something, and you, this is a story that came across. You came across and realized this would make a great, could make a great feature film. Um, in that process, you decided somewhere in there to shoot this in black and white. Was there an aesthetic purpose for that? What was the reason that you chose black and white? Well, there were many reasons. Perhaps the first one is that. We wanted to make a statement as filmmakers, or I personally wanted to make a statement as filmmakers to really look at the image, express with the image um, something. I knew we were not reproducing reality as it is, otherwise it would be a color, right? But we wanted to, to speak uh, honestly about reality. I think black and white allows us to say, Yes, it's this. This is how we live. This is Peru through our memory, through our emotional memory. And our emotional memory was like that because we we don't remember color in a way in those particular years of <clears throat> crisis where everything was out of control. I don't know if you remember well, but the president in those years was a sort of version of a Peruvian version of Donald Trump in the sense that didn't um, seem to be acting from a place of a certain stability <laughs> that you know we would expect from leaders even though if we don't agree with them even though if we don't like the many things about them but a certain normality let's put it in that term he was definitely having mental issues. So the, the same feeling, of course, if, if that's your leader, you, the population and the, your reality seems completely out of control, weird in a way. So um, as I said before, it's not about disagreement with the politics. It's something much deeper where you, you know that your leader is acting from a place that's profoundly sick. Yeah, the country, of course, went crazy, <laughs> as, as you can imagine. So um, there was a war between Shining Path and uh, the military, and they both uh, were as violent as the other. Now, finally, 
there was a commission established, a commission of truth many years later, and they determined that uh, they were almost half and half in the number of people that they killed. You know? Shining Punk Path killed more people, but the military killed a lot of people too. No? Almost the same. They were acting like barbarians. And, uh, obviously, the, our memory of it the, doesn't have color of the 80s. And also, in those days, uh, a million people left the country. Wow. All these wow. events. Yeah, and it's, it's a funny note that if you ask people who left in those days, or people who have left, who, who have lived those, in the 80s in Peru, they, they would remember them as days of winter, not only colorless, but days of winter. Yeah. Many immigrants like feel like in Lima there's no summer. And actually, when you come back, you notice that there is summer. We have a summer. It's not just gray like in the movie. But of course, what the prevalence is, it's the winter, the coldness, the, the, Harsh, cold. the harshness of it. Right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so that's one reason that newspapers in those days were only printed in black and white. So, yeah. and this movie, come, the story comes from the news, from the news in the newspaper. So it, it made sense also that yeah. our memory of it is, our visual memory of it is in black and white. And the third reason it's practical. It's a low budget film and dealing with coloring with such budget, it's not a good idea. It, it would most likely lead you to inaccuracies. It really works well, especially given this sort of disorientation that uh, Georgina and Leo are going through trying to make sense of this and sort of without any kind of support or help from the police or from the institutions that are obviously, and I mean, from what you said, are failing, failing the entire populace. So you watch this happen. But in addition to those reasons that you just articulated, it's a beautifully composed film, the way that it looks, not just the black and white part, but, and I do want to, at this point, before we, before we get to the, uh, the cinematographer, I want to let our listeners know we're speaking with Melina Leon, and she is the director of first first feature film, which is amazing, Song Without a Name. Let's go back to the cinematography. Inti Briones, again, I, that question about composition. I mean, you obviously had a collaboration with Inti and how, and how it was going to look, but there's some, so many creative looks to it. And uh, one that I really liked was the soft focus and it's and it's maybe on shot on this looking along the side of a hill, but it's when Georgina and Leo are sort of they emerge out of this sort of foggy, you know, whatever they're walking towards the camera, and they begin to emerge as 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 figures in in this shot. And oh. you use you went back to that motif a few times to sort of it 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 just lends this whole the film that to that what you were talking about this sort of disorientation. It's and it works beautifully, but tell, tell a little bit about your relationship with Enti and, and, and making this. Yeah, he's been a key member of the crew, for sure. Um, he started as a, in the film, I mean, uh, as a director of photography, of course, and then became a co-producer when he found out the budget because uh, he knew he, he had to contribute to it and instead of getting money from it. So and afterwards, during post production, he became a producer of the film because uh, 
he realized he he loved the film and uh, we we needed post-production we needed a, a good very good post-production facility and we couldn't afford it so he because he's very experienced and works in brazil he managed to get us a, a wonderful deal a house there that's called o2 and that uh, was able to make a lot of special effects and a wonderful image correction. So I was very incredibly lucky to to have his support. And um, about the shot that you're mentioning, it's interesting because we try to get that shot uh, intellectually, like we discuss it, we discuss that we thought in a way these characters have been have been made by society as phantoms. They are not phantoms, they are real people, but they they are not seen by anybody. They, they are dismissed. They have been converted to phantoms, invisible. But we, we never were able to find the proper image in this moment we're gonna shoot it like this you know to plan ahead yeah. but we we had this profound uh, need to express how is it like to be invisible to people to society police you go to the police they don't care about you you go to the court and they really don't give a damn about you so um and then the moment came when we were in the desert and we didn't have potent lights to to film and the, we we got a very special good a very good camera but still it was not good for this darkness and then he remembered he had shot um ayahuasca ceremony once when he was very young and unexperienced and then, and he didn't know he was not uh, aware of the fact that these ayahuasca sessions start when the sun comes down so that they take place in the dark or just with the light of the moon. So he had recorded one of these and found himself in the darkness and he had made um, the shutter just go very slow so that it could capture something. Some light, right? Something, yeah. So that's exactly what, what he made. Then. And in, the, in this special case, uh, he made the camera run um, very very slow like uh, I think three frames per second or something like that and yeah he got that effect and and then we were watching he said let's try the same thing that I tried in the ayahuasca session and then we saw it and it was magical there it was our profound uh, you know need to say they are phantoms because uh, you, you, we were able to capture them but because of the framing they look like a strobe it produces an effect that is like a strobe that makes them look it's a representation of what we would say it's a phantom a figure that moves no the movement is fuzzy and watching that and because we see it a couple of times in the film watching it it feels like they could be emerging from a blizzard Literally, I know it's I know it's not winter, and I know you know. I it felt like there was any number of ways to interpret. It was almost like a like an abstract painting of sorts that you would you could read into it. What as they emerge, you start to understand what it is. But 
it's a wonderful motif that I and I thought the fact that you came back to it a couple of times works really well for the film. And the other part of the uh, that I thought was wonderful uh, was the uh, beginning of the film when we're in the village of Andean community and someone brought them a gift of of a costume to be worn in uh, in a sort of a, in a community setting. And then the next part of that scene, we see them playing music. And uh, it's beautiful. It's beautifully shot. The, the music itself is emotional. And it reminded me an awful lot of Appalachian music from mm-hmm. in America. The, the violin, the sound of the violin that was being played, and it's sort of that high-pitched sound. The singing, it reminded me very much of, a, of what it, you would associate with American Appalachian music. And I don't, I don't know if there's this commonality among indigenous people's sound, the sound of their, it doesn't mean that everyone sounds that way. I don't mean to imply that, but I was struck by that. And I, I think it has something to do with the instrumentation that's available. And, but the singing is so, it's so heartfelt. I don't, you know what I mean? I'm, I'm, I hope I'm struggling a little bit here, but you understand what I'm, what I'm yeah, trying to Yeah, no, it's hard to describe music in particular. It's hard to describe. And, and I see what you mean. I was surprised to find out, Pauchi was giving an interview the other day, Pauchi, the composer mm-hmm. uh, of the soundtrack. Um, and she was saying that uh, the violin is an instrument that has been adopted by all the cultures, all the indigenous cultures in the world. So it's, it's the Andean culture, the Appalachian culture, everywhere. Um, it's being mixed, appropriated. So there's something very special about that instrument, for sure. Um, she says maybe it's because the, the, the scales are very similar to, or the tone is similar to the human voice. Uh, yeah. I thought mm-hmm. that actually, the, and the pitch of the instrument and the singing were, were very in sync, very close to yeah. one another. Yeah, and, and that pitch also you, you can hear uh, in the Chinese operas, right? It's also, it's also in uh, the Roma culture is, is a very similar sound to it. So. Yeah. Uh, well, I I I know very little of the, the Roma culture, but I I because we have a lot of Chinese immigration, mm-hmm. we I have heard more uh, about this similarity. You know, I'm more aware of this similarity. Yeah. And so yes, I, I it was very important for me to have that moment that you're talking about. Yeah. Because you know, in typical terms of drama, some people were suggesting, why don't you start this film when she gives birth? And then the tragedy happens faster. And I was like, no, deep inside I was like, no, we should see the moments of hope. We should see the moments of beauty. And we should see the Andean culture, even though if it's for a brief moment in this celebration at the very beginning. Um, Because there's this stupid notion that, oh, this is their destiny. Their destiny is to be sad and in bad in bad situations and poor and um, hopeless. No, it's like Andean culture is beautiful. It's it's wonderful and and people my immigrants have hope and they have no intention to stay in the same situation where they arrive. Right, like obviously, like all of us, 
we start in life in one place and then we go back or we, we have falls and downs and ups and um, so the, there's nothing static about the Andean culture. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a moment where they had to immigrate to the cities because of this war in, in the Andes. So obviously they had to, to save their lives, they had to, to move. And they came to the city and they start their houses in the, as you see, in the desert, in these dunes because that was the only thing available. And of course, 30 years later, we we, we couldn't even film there because they have managed to change it. Uh, It's not great at all in all these years, uh, but they have improved a lot. Yeah. Um, So we had to find another place to film, et cetera, et cetera. But um, my point to, to the begin, beginning was this. I wanted to show that. So this, uh, this notion of um, destiny, is we, we don't reinforce this stereotype. Right. Well, and also f- for me, you established this humanity, the sense of community, there's not a lot of dialogue in that part of the film in terms of sort of getting to, we get to know something about Georgina and Leo, but we see that sense of community, that sense of connection, which makes what happens to her in just in terms of drama for no other reason, what happens to her more wrenching and more dramatic and, and more emotional because we've spent time with her. We, we understand where she's from and how, there isn't many opportunities. And so when something comes up, she's going to give birth. She doesn't really, at that point, doesn't seem like she has a birth plan or birth, what's going to happen when she begins to give birth. And this thing, this radio announcement, which we haven't talked about, this announcement over the radio announcing that you can come to this clinic and don't worry about it. We'll take care of everything, basically, is the pitch. And so when she goes there, as as naive and hopeful as she can be, and then these things start to unfold in front of her. And it's, it is an, a very emotional pull for me in, in watching the film. And I think what you did was absolutely the right, the right move was to, to do what, that, uh, the, what we see at the beginning of the film. So the uh, film we're talking about is called Song Without a Name. And we're speaking with the director, Melina Leon. And the film has won a number of awards. I think uh, over 30 awards. It was nominated at the Cannes Film Festival for the Camera de Or. What has this ride been like for you since the film has been birthed into the world? Well, the ride has been crazy. It's been insane. I, I just went with it <laughs> and very thankful, full of doubts. Thank God, I, I, going back to our DP interview on SDP slash producer, he, he has done like 30 films, so he knows what's up. At some point I was like, indeed, this is crazy. We're talking about the most fragile part of our society, which happens to be the majority of the society. We're talking about poor people and injustice and racism and all these disgraces that happen in the world. And here we are drinking champagne in Cannes. What are we doing? Are we becoming hypocrites or something? And it's like, no, don't gorge, drink your champagne. It's, it's going to pass very soon. It's you're just We're just promoting the film and this is part of the family of film and some people are fancier than others and i decided to accept that um so yeah i did i with that i i, 
I took all the invitations because in the end it's about showing our culture, showing what happens uh, not only to Peruvians, what happens in humanity. This is starting a dialogue about um, all these issues, promoting art, promoting other ways of expression, not just one kind of film, not just coming from one country, but from Peru, from Chile, from, from everywhere, from Mexico. And that has a meaning. That has been, that idea has been able to sustain me over these crazy tours that I, that I went through. Yeah. Three days per city and all that. We have to be thankful for showing our films. It's, it's a fight, it's a constant fight and uh, film festivals are our allies so that all cultures get seen. Yeah, I can understand what you just described as being a bit uh, incongruous to what you, for the reason you made the film, and like you said, sipping champagne at Cannes can be one of those, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know can, I'm sure it's, it's otherworldly in some ways, but it does hopefully provide you with an opportunity and a platform to be able to make more films like this, to tell these kinds of stories moving forward. So hopefully that's that's what's around the bend for you in terms of your career and your 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 uh, life as a storyteller uh, has has the film been screened in Peru? It has. Last year we were in the Lima Film Festival. And how did it, how did it? What was the reaction? What surprised you about the reaction? It, it, it was it was it surprised me. For example, that they plan to do three screenings, like in most festivals, but uh, the tickets sold out the same day. So they had to open a fourth one. And it surprised me how well received it was. But we were supposed to do the commercial release, the, the theatrical release on April. So there you, you get to see the people who are not just film fans, everybody. You know? So I was so looking forward to the moment. But because of COVID, we had to suspend it and all theaters got shut down and stuck up. Um, at least we had that. We had the Lima Film Festival. So I'm, I'm happier, I guess, that we were able to do that. Yeah, it, it was very well received, I think. Did you uh, get an award? Did you get an award for uh, Lima? Where we, won. we won a few awards there too. Yeah, we, we got the Special Jury Award. Yeah. And Pamela was, um, yeah. she got a special mention. Uh, and we had. Um, Best film by the Ministry of Culture of Peru, and also best script by an institution called Indecopter. Has there been kind of a reconciliation in regard to the that period of time, the nineteen late nineteen eighties, early nineteen nineties, in Peru? Is this is this helping to promote more of a discussion? Has there been sort of a discussion about what happened during that period of time? Yeah, yeah, we were hoping to contribute to that uh, discussion. And yeah, there's been a commission uh -oh. of truth and reconciliation um, about the, what happened in those years, uh, the, the war between Shining Path and the military. We were hoping to contribute to that, just, but uh, yeah, we, I mean, when we, re, when we are able to show the film, of course, we'll talk, we'll talk about it. Yeah, um, yeah but unfortunately, the, I think the film is gonna have uh, it's gonna be seen in another light. Uh, it has to do with the COVID, right? 
unfortunately I'm saying because we thought we were in better shape, but unfortunately I think the the situation we're at now is that is that it's almost like a mirror of the film. People are dying here not only because of COVID, but because the health system is at complete disaster. So even though we quarantined since March 14th, if I remember well, or 16th, it didn't work. We have 45,000 people who died. And even though we took every measure, but because we were in ruins, our health system was in ruins, um, it didn't work. And if you think about it, that's the story of the film. It begins with a woman who doesn't have herself a health system in place for her. And then, voila, it's tragedy. So it's, it's devastating to, to see how little we, we have really improved. Not this makeup of a society where you have buildings and fancy restaurants and whatnot. Um, in reality, the, the, the structure of it, it's, it's like you see in the film. Yeah, I, I agree. I would just say a couple of things. We have, and it's just a, sort of a more of a political comment about the United States and in, in true around the world, is we have gutted our public health system in favor of a private health care system. And for those who can afford a private health care system, they can get very good care. For those who can't, you have a decimated public health system and you see the impacts. And for those who think they can escape those impacts, we're finding out that COVID doesn't care whether or not, or this pandemic doesn't care whether or not you're rich or, or whatever. However, having said that, the, the poorest people in our country are, are suffering disproportionately. And I'm sure yeah. that's the case around the world. So we, we, this, this is a kind of a truth serum for the United, for everyone, this, this pandemic is yeah. if you think you know what you're doing, this, this disease has shown that you may not. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it, it it has shown us that we are one people. Yeah. And we can't think, oh, individually, I'm going to do this and have my own private health system, my own education system, my own, because I can't afford it. It doesn't work like that. Right. It never did. This pandemic is just showing us in a brutal way. We're learning the hard way that it. Yeah. It's not like that. It has to be everybody or otherwise the entire planet is going to perish and yeah. seems to be happening. Yeah. Well, well, thank you so very much for this film, um, Song Without a Name. And it's, it's, it's a beautiful film to look at. It's a very involving kind of story. And before I let you go, I've got to mention, you mentioned her just briefly, Pamela Mendoza, you ask a lot of her in terms of just being able to kind of carry the weight of the world in her performance. She, and I think, I thought she was terrific. I thought what she did in a very quiet way, and I'm sure in some part to your direction, without having to say a lot, she was able to project an awful lot of what was going on with her character and that she did a wonderful job. Yeah. Thank you for that. I'll let her know. Yeah. She's, she has been fantastic. My, my contribution to her was find her and my what i did was look for look in the right place i didn't look in the casting houses 
like fancy ha casting professional houses we have in Lima. I went to be El Salvador, the neighborhood outside Lima, where a lot of millions of people live and in bad conditions and went through to their theater, their small theaters they have, and just told, make friends with them and and talk to the director of one of these theaters and he described my project and he thought about it. And that's my, that's my participation. And I, I found her and then she, she just came on board and became the heart of the film. And I think, um, yeah, she, she wanted to, she's really talented, of course, uh, but also it was important for her to, she's portraying her mother or the generation of her mother somehow so she it was a big responsibility for her to do a good job because it's honoring that generation of immigrants that started out in the dunes out of nothing she gained like 20 kilos she worked on her accent um so that it, it would be believable because she, the way she speaks, she was not allowed to speak Quechua. So she learned a little bit of Quechua for those moments where she needs to use it. And um, she she went to college in Peru. So her way of speaking is more sophisticated. So she had to work a lot to lose all those words that would make her sound too too intellectual. So it was, it was crazy. Her... Yeah. Well, she delivered really well my congratulations to her for her work and uh well i want to thank you so much and i hope you're working on more projects moving forward and when the opportunity presents itself i would love to have you come back on and have a conversation about whatever that might be melina thank you, thank you so much melina leon is the director as well as the, one of the writers, I haven't been mentioning that, also one of the co-writers of the film, along with Michael J. White of the film Song Without a Name. Thank you so very much for spending some time with us here on Film School Radio. Thank you, Michael. Pleasure to meet you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Film School Radio, the on-air online showcase for the best in independent documentary and foreign films. You can find out more about the program at filmschoolradio.com. I'm your host, Mike Kaspar. Thank you for tuning in, and we'll see you next week with another edition of Film School Radio.